This is the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, Episode 23. We are talking to artist Christian Capuro. Hello and welcome to the Mornington Peninsula Regional Galleries Conversation Series, a podcast for people curious about art and the lives of artists. In this episode, senior curator Danny Lacey talks to Christian Capuro about his work featured in the MPIG exhibition Obsession, Devil in the Detail. Another misspent portrait of Etienne de Silhouette was created over a five-year period. It is a September 1986 issue of the Vogoms magazine, with Sylvester Stallone on the cover, that has been carefully erased by over 260 people. The participants, aged from 8 to 80 years of age, inscribe the time taken to erase the page with its monetary value according to their current income. Discover how Capuro is interested in the idea of how erasure is manifested and how image making is simultaneously a making and unmaking process. Thanks for joining us today, Christian. Thank you for coming. First want to ask you, how did you first become interested in image making? Image making, well, I first became interested in photography. I guess thinking of it as image making was only something that came later on. It was a desire to find something, make something, fashion something in a very straightforward way, but as much as anything, probably it was about a way of being with other people and being with myself, with other people, or separate. And it was through photography. But it wasn't a straightforward decision. I was never one of those people that said, I've been drawing since I was five years old and you know, I was always destined to be an artist. And it came more haphazardly and through coincidences and through um, just finding the right people at the right time that suddenly opened up a world whereby I felt there was something that I could participate in and make something of my own. Mm. And you were heavily involved with the artist-run scene in Melbourne in the late 1990s, early 2000s, having a number of exhibitions in spaces like West Space and First Floor and Temple. What did you learn from exhibiting in these spaces? In some respects I was involved but not. I didn't come out of art school the second time after photography school as part of some milieu I was always pretty much on my own and my contact with artists from space was, was often more at a distance. West Space was the only moment in 2001, 2, 3, around then that I became directly involved in the life of the artist run space. I never felt particularly connected to groups or um, spaces but did exhibit in quite a few. I never thought about what I learned from that until the Venice Biennale in 2007 when I was installing and realised when I looked around at all these other artists, artists with incredible records flailing around wildly at the Venice Biennale because there was little or no assistance and that always relied on people to do things for them and it was then I realised that all of those artist-run spaces and those self-produced shows, getting the lighting right, getting the walls right, having the equipment came in handy when I didn't have to rely too heavily on other people doing the work for me. That was probably the valuable thing, putting on shows. Mm. One of the ideas that reappears in your work is that of erasure. 
Can you talk a little bit about this and the ways that erasure has manifested itself across your practice? It was only doing a talk a month or so ago that I realised this condition of the image or image making being a, a making and an unmaking process simultaneously goes back to when I was 20, 21 as a photography student and the last body of work I made when I was studying which involved uh, photographic capture and then the processing in the lab in some respects despoiling and unmaking the picture and then taking that final combination of both image and process as the final state has been there quite early and re-emerged later on maybe 10 years after that with some of the correction fluid works and then the erasure works and even the more recent um, work for tired eyes the black overpaintings I was asked this question at the talk that I gave by Tom Nicholson in a very concise, direct manner and a similar question which had more to do with faith in the image or not, belief in the image or not, hold on the image or not. And at that time, because he asked, what underpins all of this? And I couldn't properly answer that. But I was thinking at the time there was a lovely thing that Herman Brock wrote about, I think he used the phrase, since the herd beginning, since we were very primal beings, there's always been too much. And how do we deal with that? In what way do we deal with the pressure of a pictorial representation, whether it's a singular, strong, iconic, god-like figure or animal god or whatever that bears down upon us, or whether it's the vast junk of popular culture bearing down in different ways, how can one bear that? How can one live and live through that? Which isn't so much about just quantity, it's as much about the way in which that image, that visual culture occupies space. How much space do you have? And so in many respects, erasure is something which was as much a spatial issue for me as a psychological issue, as a pictorial issue. I'd love to hear you talk about your work, Another Misspent Portrait of Etienne de Silhouette. Where did the original idea for this project come from? And can you talk a little bit about the iterations that have come from this and the project in large, really? It's been quite a long-running project. I'd really love to hear about how it started and how it developed and evolved. In many respects, I only had to think about how it started in retrospect and because it took... The first stage of it was four or five years. It was only after about four or five years when people asked me to articulate what this thing was that I had to then retrospectively try to come to terms with that moment. So everything I've said about it, I've always qualified with that the origins in some way have been remade in my mind over and over again. And I'm sure there's some kernels of truth. There's some fabrications built into all of that and like everything for the most part that I do it emerged out of other work a process these small little strips of tape work that I was doing around the late 90s and it wasn't the works that I was making it was the bits of they were junk mail catalogues that are being stripped off by tape it was the junk mail catalogues that were left over after all the bits had been stripped off which had made the work which I then looked at and wondered well 
I have this thing here. Is this thing part of the work? Which it proved to be in the show that I did at Strip, the last show of the graftings. And so it, Etienne de Silhouette work emerged out of this other batch of work. But it emerged out of a very particular moment as well where I found myself in a situation like most of us do where I was asked, I had to question what my time was worth, the value of what I did. And because on the one hand I thought of myself as an artist and a practising artist, which I didn't get anything for financially at that point, I was also working as a self-employed photographer. And the story goes, as I've told myself, there was one moment where a prominent collector had purchased work from my first exhibition and by a combination of meetings and friendships, I was then asked to photograph the art collection that my work had become part of. And then I realised that I was actually being paid to photograph my own work. And I took the liberty of asking this collector, a prominent Melbourne former curator, director, about why they purchased the work. And in his offhand way, he said, oh, well, they were inexpensive. We could take the chance with, you're a young artist, didn't cost much. And these are incredibly labour-intensive works. Might have taken a month to make a small picture, which I think I sold for $250. And then I realised I was getting paid $150 an hour to photograph this work. And all of a sudden, I became very, very conscious of the disparity. And then I asked this collector about this disparity. And his very direct response was, we didn't need to buy your work, but we do need the collection photographed. And then I started thinking about these different types of um, orders of value and necessity and want and... That led me to think about how does one as an artist deal with these abstract things without illustrating them. And I never wanted to be an illustrator. I've always railed against illustrative art. And I wanted some of these questions, which were part of image culture questions, to be embodied within a very singular object that came out of image culture, which was the French men's vogue that is the heart of the Etienne de Silhouette project, that I then on the spur of the moment, asked someone to erase one of the pages, the first page in the magazine, which they rubbed out, and then I asked them could they write in pencil on the page the time it took them to rub it out, and also what, if anything, they were earning for their time translated into an hourly rate or hourly rates. And then I asked another person and another person and another person, the next page, the next page, all done anonymously in that their names are not on the pages but acknowledged separately. And then that was five years to get the 260 or f odd people to erase every page in that magazine. And in some respects, it was a question about very abstract value things. It was about my own place in a circuit of exchange, material exchange, financial exchange, effective relationships, because this was an intact magazine. It had to be handed to each person and negotiated the exchange and the action individually and then to retrieve it off them. And that set up a whole dynamic which then led to the second stage of the project when the magazine had been erased and re-inscribed. I then asked myself, well, is this the work? Was that the work that happened then? Is the work this tatty, emptied-out magazine? I answered that yes and no, and it took me a while to answer that question myself. And then I realised that 
part of the dynamic of the work was the exchange that took place between all the people, between myself and the people and the people and the people who they passed it on to sometimes. And what they invested in this very simple action and this very rudimentary object. And from those conversations, then I thought about the idea of the work recirculating and going back into the world and some of those conversations being reactivated and developed in a public way. And that led to the second stage of the project, which I call the response program. And then that then took on a life of its own for 18 months in Melbourne in 2004-05, where the magazine travelled to public sites all around Melbourne, and each site, whether it was a day or six weeks, was on display, the magazine. And someone was invited, or a couple of people were invited for each location to respond to the work, to the magazine, but also the fantasy of the work for them. And, and that brought in a vast range of people, from people like Adam Bant, who spoke at the Trades Hall Council under the eight-hour-day banner where the magazine was placed on the origins of hourly rates in the Australian arbitration system. There was a Greek Orthodox priest who, when the magazine was located in inverted commas here, because the magazine never went there, he spoke about the image working in his church, how images in orthodoxy work. Ross Moore wrote an extraordinary text around excess and waste in culture that he then handed over to... Penny Trotter to perform at the Salvation Army family store in Abbotsford one day and there were eight, nine, ten and each work came about from an invitation. I never asked people to do anything. If they responded to the work in a way and they prepared to take the invitation up, then that developed its own life and then that in the next stage at the Venice Biennale became a formalised installation of the work with a couple of other works that had grown out of it, a photographic work, poster works, and then an off-site program in Venice, which led to Leuven in Belgium where it was invited and that was an installation and a shortwave broadcast over five days. So each occasion has then necessitated a different way of thinking about what this thing is and how it can still generate. More recently, you've created two large series of works, Slave, that was shown at ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, in 2014, and Ice Dust from 2016. I'm really interested by the processes that you've used for both of these series, and in particular the ways that you've used or incorporated technologies such as mobile phones to construct images. Can you talk about both of these projects? Probably worth addressing Ice Dust, even though it came after Slave, because in many respects, Ice Dust harks back to the earliest photography that I did around 1989, the process of capturing an image and then processing it, or the lab processing it, and that becoming this composite image, which is both material and an image. In some respects, the Ice Dust are a, a return and a rethinking of that in the digital age. The Ice Dust quite literally are commercial images, magazine pages torn out, of uh, publications scanned on a flatbed scanner and in the act of scanning also processing that scan through dust and scratch removal software and it came about like most things as an error years ago and an error that was a frustration and was an interruption to other work and was discarded which I returned to 
as we often do, we return to our mistakes, we return to our crap that's on the floor and look at it freshly because we have a different sort of attention. And I recognised in this technological mind that's doing a job on an image, a very particular job that if deployed slightly, let's say at a slant, slightly incorrectly, slightly misapplied, it set up a whole cacophony of surprising reactions within an image. And basically the logic of the iStus works is that I scan an image and all these images have text on them like most magazine advertisements do. And the page is scanned as often as it takes to find a a version whereby the text on the page is either erased, effaced or made illegible. And then in that coming together of the text being unmade, let's say, or made incomprehensible, I then look at what it does to the image and find where the image breaks down or is remade because the scanner is actually remaking the image in on a particle level, let's say, a digital level, as you can see in some of these pictures. Some of them have whole fabrications of areas. Others are quite true to the image. And that was the general process. And that after, it took me about three or four years of trying to understand the logic and the mentality of the scanner and the process, and then how certain images worked in relationship to that, that I became comfortable with the thought that there is something interesting here that's just more than, oh, isn't this curious? And that then became what I then referred to as the ice dust works, which in 2016 at Milani Gallery in Brisbane had their first showing. And they're very large pictures. They're nearly two metre high by 120 uh, photographs. And they need to be that size because... As you can see in the studio, there are 83 size pictures here, which you get a sense that they're a corrupted, they're a distorted, they're a remade image, but it's only at the larger scale that you actually see the macro level of where this image has been remade and where both the analogue is faithfully translated and where the digital fabrication, let's call it, has been added to the image. Only at the big scale do you actually get a sense of that properly. And that's pretty much how I think about them, not necessarily in terms of the images, but in terms of a process and a reaction. Whether it's noise, I wonder whether all I'm doing is adding noise sometimes. We probably don't have necessarily time to go into what these images are, but these images, for the most part, at least with the first showing of them, they were selected based upon something about them being a very generic image a generic image that was on the one hand familiar to us, but at the same time was familiar to us within a certain context, not necessarily pushing a narrative dimension too far. And what interests me as much as anything was in some respects the drift, which you see optically of the matter in the pictures that drifts and how it drifts across multiple pictures in a space, but also the sense that these images that we have today in some respects have drifted from an earlier time as well. They are somehow, not archetypal images, but they are, let's say, the child of another image 100 years, 200, 300 years ago. And that idea of this return of an image and the constant return is part of the status of certain type of image making that interests me at the moment.
and that work, the ice dust, has generated a whole another series of more radical um, interventions which haven't been shown and don't even have a name at this point. But that, for me, it's both a photographic, a technical, and then also uh, what is an image, a very fundamental question, what is this image? And how much does recognition play in looking at these images, recognition and recall? The slave work at Acker in 2014, which was a eight large eight-channel installation of seven or eight projections around two metres high, um, four metres high, sorry, oh, I've forgotten, four metres high, it was seriously large. That was a wonderful thing to be able to do. To be honest, it was a work that I never thought would ever be realised. It came out of films that I was making on my mobile phone in 2012 in Portugal on a Samstag year away where I didn't necessarily have all the stuff around me that I, I was using and I was making as in a studio. And I wanted to free up the way I went about making images and existing in the world and these phone image capture was something I'd never done before. I'd never used that um, process. And so that slave work came out of the mobile phone image making. But the slave work is a very particular mini group of work which I shot in 2013 in Vienna at the Mumok where there was a Dan Flavin survey show. And I'd filmed a Dan Flavin monument to Vladimir Tatlin in Lisbon, one of the earliest films I made, and it set me thinking. And when I found a whole room full of these works in Vienna over three months, I went back every Thursday night when it was free, instead of paying 10, 15 euro a pop, and filmed for a couple of hours in the space each monument, fluorescent tube monument, on my phone from the same position, and then tried to think about how could I restage this presentation through film and in filmic terms and through mobile phone filmic terms where its own processor, its own scanning, its own capacity to hold a, an image, to hold an exposure, to hold the movement of a thing, to activate something, I could bring into play and recreate at one remove and that was the slave work. A slave work which was incredibly a very simple work in some respects. And the longer I've been making work, the more interested I've become in trying to find the most economical way of dealing with something, pairing it back. And that multi-channel film installation is connected to the works that I've been making since then. And from 2012, the films on the phone, which for the most part are closer to photography. They're closer to the street photography that I did as a teenager. Uh, still photography and that's the work that I'm working on along with the ice dust type of work and the work for tired eyes black work it's the iPhone film work which traces the streets you could say and the pathways and the railways throughout Melbourne and films the urban space in a very very photographic way a still moving photographic way and then has a small or large disturbance within that scene, whether it's the light that bounces off a car, whether it's the movement of the sun, whether it's the activity of people within a space, that's become my preoccupation, which satisfies a need to be on the move and to be responsive to very, very particular things where each time I leave the house to go filming, I have no idea what will happen. Very different from working in a studio very different from, say, a 
a five-year erasure work or a 10-year erasure work like a vacant bazaar was. Mm -hmm. Finally, what advice would you give to artists just starting out? In some respects, the only thing that has to be there is a desire and a curiosity and uh, in, in some respects a blind faith that all of this visual culture that is around us, which is made by all of these people that exists, that one can actually have your own head within that and not be satisfied with all these other things that people make. That one can embrace that and fashion something from within that which isn't secondhand. And to have that blind faith and to be incredibly dogged. And to find people who care about what you do and care about you for a start because <laughs> without that, <laughs> you're on your own. And you, you know, you've got to be on your own but you also need other sorts of connections to the world and it's how you fashion those connections and you keep them solid that matters. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Christian. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode 23 of our conversation series. Mornington Peninsula Regional Gallery is the region's major cultural facility and is supported by Mornington Peninsula Shire and other partners. Visit mprg.mornpen.vic.gov.au to find out about our latest exhibitions and events. Our podcast program is supported by the Gordon Darling Foundation. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode.